You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover magic, the gathering finance. All right. You don't know about it. You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seat belts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. Cord. <clears throat> All right, we're good. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. This week we start part one of question mark two to three, probably yeah. uh, our deep dive on the Alta Fox Save the Wizards campaign. And personally, I haven't been this excited about a topic we've covered since we did the history of the reserve list. Uh, the way we're going to handle it is basically each of us, like we said in the summary episode, we poured over the 150 pages. We each had a few pages that we individually picked out and said, hey, this seems relevant to me. We're going to tell you what we think about it. We may have questions for the person who expressed what they thought about it. Yeah. And then we'll just queue it up onto the next set of pages. If you want to follow along while you're listening, we will have the link to the PDF itself. And we will be saying page numbers yes. as we go across the different points. Mm -hmm. Um, so, with that, we will get it taken away. So, the first page is yours, and we're yes. looking at page nine. Yeah. Uh, so, this one's kind of important, because this is where AltaFox basically states, here's why we need to do this. And it's basically flaws in the company narrative, and flaws in particular in what Hasbro referred to as their brand blueprint, which was like a two-page investor document that was a bunch of fluff that just said, hey, we're making, we're pushing all of our products in every direction possible to maximize profit. Yes. Yep. I, I guess that's a thing you can do. Uh, it really just seems like, and AltaFox mentions this, there's really not like a strategic direction or financial discipline. And the exact example they use was in 2019, Hasbro acquired E1 using funds from Wizards of the Coast. Ostensibly, this was for them to be like, all right, we're going to make a D&D movie, Magic the Gathering show, like the one on Netflix. Years later, we still have nothing going on from this. There's no information on these. Sure, there's a, you know, esoteric MTG show that might be about Chandra. It might be about the Super Best Friends League. We're not entirely sure that's on Netflix. In the meantime, We've had more G.I. Joe movies. We've had more Transformers movies and TV shows. So their argument is basically, hey, uh, you basically decided to use Wizards of the Coast to buy this company to make media for your brands, mm -hmm. which is fine. Except that the only brands it has been used to make media for are Hasbro core brands rather than Wizards of the Coast core brands, those being Magic and Dungeons and & Dragons. And there's actually a brilliant quote on the end of page nine that's from a former uh from a six former 16 year employee from watsi that synergies have been in one direction wizards has given hasbro a ton of financial resources and hasbro hasn't given anything back pushing wizards of the coast's brands behind their own brands while kind of delaying their development under wizards of the coast and then on page 10 uh, it gets into the nitty-gritty, the actual specifics of how stuff has returned, whatever else. And then they actually say, here's our proposal on page 11. And this is or the really big announcement 
when everyone first broke free the wizards was hey we think you should spin off wizards of the coast and page 11 is exactly where they're saying look this is how you do this this is why this is smart this is broad strokes why this makes sense the following 140 pages are more nitty-gritty minutiae details of why this makes sense but this is your broad strokes to me pages 9 10 and 11 were like the most important pieces of the document because they formed the foundation for the entire 150 or 100 page proposal mm-hmm. or whatever it was yeah it, it i agree especially with the last part that's why the previous episode that we did we we took a look at this from the vendor perspective and in reality as a vendor you could stop reading after those pages because if alta fox doesn't run with this then somebody else might and they're yeah. pushing not a narrative they're pushing for change in a very specific direction and i think no matter who you are the core of this idea is something that could and should resonate as we'll see as we move through this document you know this is just the high level this is the opening paragraph of the thesis paper you wrote when you were in school and it is extremely important because the brand blueprint kind of sets the table for a lot more of this article and Watsi's, not sorry, Watsi, Hasbro's failure in the marketplace to really capitalize. Yeah. And something that I don't think is talked about in 9 through 11, but comes up shortly, is the comparison to Mattel and Hasbro's yeah. failure to keep up with Mattel because Hasbro's sticking with the brand blueprint model. Yeah, and there, there is actually, there's one point that really sticks out to me. And this is something you and I touched on on the last episode on page 11 mm-hmm. is Watsi seems to be significantly undervalued because there is poor disclosure and poor messaging. Yes. You know, the Saffron Olive tweet where he's like, LOL, they used a Reddit poll. Yeah, but with, they could literally give investors the information on how many players they have, how much each player spends, all of that. We could see growth from those numbers. But due to poor disclosure on their part, they have to use a Reddit poll to get this information. Yep. Why? Uh, and then continuing on, uh, my next, and we're going in order of pages we found, uh, 13 and 14 in this is where they basically give the overview of here is what Wizards of the Coast actually brings to the table. Mm-hmm. And the two really big things that they bring are Magic the Gathering, where they give a brief description, founded in 93, and Dungeons and Dragons, founded in 1974. Granted, that was under TSR, but TSR became a part of WotC, became, you know, whatever, that's fine. Uh, there is also a very telling graph on this point, or on this page, where they basically estimate the percentage of revenue in 2021. Why would they estimate the revenue mix? They literally say Hasbro has not broken out Wizards of the Coast revenue mix, which is, for anyone, just a bad look. You know, it, it doesn't say being able to see your revenue streams as an investor is one of the most important things. When you go to Wells Fargo and you invest in Wells Fargo and they have their investor meetings, they tell you, here's what we're doing on home mortgages. Here's what we're doing on vehicle mortgages. Here's what we're doing on our, you know, IRAs. This is what these streams look like. Yep. And the fact that you're not disclosing this when you have these IPs that have a captive fan base, which has been exploding 
courtesy of shows like Critical Role and stuff like that, where all of a sudden we're having this pop culture resurgence of nerddom. And you should be cashing in on this. And you should be using these established, entrenched fan bases to show growth, to show the investment potential is huge. I mean, we've seen over the last four years how many times a set releases and they're like, this is the best-selling set we've ever had in Magic. Like three or four? Because it was Dominaria, it was Throne. Yeah, it's like every one was the best-selling set after a certain point, but it also felt like it was the best-selling because they made more of it each time. So it's just like, well, what's really true here? We don't know. We don't know how many units they've moved. Watsy has kept that information close to the chest since they were a fledgling company, and Hasbro has just kind of taken that to heart. Yeah. And then the the telling thing here, and this is, for me, even as a vendor, this was one of the most important slides, was on 14, the second page of the Wizards of the Coast overview, where they say the product is distributed through a global network of 8,000 hobby shops. They're actually taking the time to recognize the significance of the LGS in this proposal, which, granted, we haven't heard Hasbro or Watsi officially say, you know, fuck the LGS, but when I don't get Crimson Vow in my store and the email says, tell your players they can get it on Amazon still, you know, fuck the LGS. Uh, so to me, this is great to see that Alta Fox recognizes this infrastructure and says, hey, this is kind of important. Yeah. Like, th- th- these guys make this run. And that's why we should emphasize that. And that's, to me, that's amazing to see. And they even touch on it in D&D. They say, you know, similar monetization. And also, uh, there's a lot more pop culture reference and relevance to Dungeons & Dragons, mm-hmm. which is something else they touch on. Which, again, like, it's nice to see them recognize, hey this distribution network works we don't need to change it because these hobby shops are paying us as wizards of the coast to grow our product and do marketing for us it, it's just it's mind-boggling why, why why don't we support this yeah better it, at all whatever yeah it, it just seems so important to me because it's such a critical like you know what yeah this is this is why we're here this is why this game has survived for so long but i i digress no it's good it tells you that that they did their research they understand the ecosystem and the support network that makes this game work and without them it just doesn't exist this isn't just throwing back to a quote-unquote better time yeah when the lgs was king in, the, in this domain and now while everybody shops on Amazon so let's just push the product there like that's still not really how this one works and AltaFox yeah. seems to have a better understanding of this than Hasbro does yeah. which is like you said great to see moving on from there uh, you and I have a sequence of pages uh, that are back to back although you know you're going to be looking at a, a series one a couple in the series. I'm looking at a page that basically kicks off that series, and it's page 21, which talks about the pricing power of packs, which is something I harped on at the end of the What We Would Do If We Ran Hasbro episode. Granted, this kind of 
speaks in the opposite direction of what I was saying, which is you don't have to charge $10 for master packs. If you drop the price, you'll still sell as many or maybe more, just print more. This is actually yep. saying that while there have been additional packs created to try and capitalize on the audience at various price points, they could instead just raise the price of the flagship product, the standard booster pack, because it's effectively been a rope for a decade and a half. They go on to talk about uh, draft set and collector's booster packs in here. And then the last bullet point is uh, one of the things that people harped on, which is arena user data. This information came from Reddit because like you said, this is the only place that they could get it. Now, this isn't to say that the sample size of 2,700 plus or minus self-selecting individuals isn't representative but at the same time these people were self-selecting and definitely are not representative of every type of arena user but to your point and this is something we're going to keep talking about if there was any kind of visibility into what was going on this reddit data wouldn't need to be used but it was the only way to collect this and so this is kind of uh, a twofold bullet point here one it points to the fact that Hasbro is unnecessarily cheeky with what's going on with this product, meaning Watsi, and it speaks to the fact that this data is available nowhere, so it really is just the best guess at what is going on, and Clarity kind of breeds ability to grow this organization. There's just no insight to even know if Hasbro is pro properly running this ship. It's a very deep bullet point just past the player data, and I think that's very important to capitalize to discuss this there is also again this twist that we talked about in the first episode which is alta fox is here to make money so the bullet point about pack prices compared to just spawning new types of packs is again very important price matters and collectors boosters proves that people are willing to buy a more quote-unquote upscale product at a higher price point and master's packs kind of prove that people are willing to spend more money for a properly curated set, which means that you could probably also raise the price point of your pack more significantly than you have in the past. Your regular pack, your set or your draft pack. And so this is something to be mindful of because this affects the entirety of the ecosystem from Watsi all the way down to the players because that means more money has to be spent <clears throat> when this is bought uh, for, at distro, when this is bought by the LGS, when this is pushed by Amazon, that means it rolls down to the player bases individually. And you might see some attrition at that point. And it's very good to keep that in mind. And I think this slide kind of prepares you for this idea that, hey, we're not just here to talk about the flaws on Watsi, we're also here to tell them how they can make more money. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing too is that it's interesting that you take that bullet point that way. Uh, I think, what I took from that bullet point specifically was basically, hey, they're finding ways to grow their revenue without increasing costs. Yeah. And which, again, you know, you don't necessarily have to increase the cost. You can find other ways. And it's interest. It's funny to me that they say, you know, it has a pseudo monopoly on the market, that it has no direct competition, which at first when I read it, I was like, I mean, there's competition. There's like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, which leads into the secular growth which is basically like look people graduate to magic now we you and i have talked about it on the podcast mm -hmm. where it used to be a game that was like for kids and as time has gone on like 
we're still playing and we've been playing for 20 years and when you look around at events it's not like it was 20 years ago when you saw a bunch of 13 14 year old and 10 year olds at events they're playing pokemon they're playing Yu-Gi-Oh, and they just sort of kind of get over to magic at that point where it's like all right i've kind of you know outlived my lifetime at this card game let me play something more complicated uh, which is interesting because you now see people like us going back and playing Pokemon again as kind of like nostalgia kicks in. Uh, but to me, that kind of belies the strength of the market is you have this natural progression where people who play another game naturally gravitate towards your product again without advertising. Yeah. Just literally by going into the LGS and saying, hey, what's going on? They see magic and go towards it um, and there's a few things they touch on here where they basically say hey arena could really make a whole lot more money if one the client worked better and two there was like a subscription model mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to realize mana traders is probably one of the most used internet tools for magic it's literally a subscription service where you can have whatever deck you want on Moto. Yeah. If And Moto numbers jump, and this is purely anecdotal because I'm able to find matches a lot easier when they drop the, what's the token called, where it's just every card? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not the full set token. It, effectively the god token, yeah. It, yeah, where it's like, hey, for 20 bucks, you can play unlimited legacy or vintage for the next X amount of months. Uh, and they even say, hey maybe have competitive events where they can earn cash prizes and have like a competitive landscape for them and i think that's again as you and i have harped on one of the most important things for magic is we really need that like we need the competitive scene if if we don't have it it's just a card game and that's the thing that to me and you said as well the fact that you have this uh ability to make a living to be competitive is what has given magic the longevity that it's had which isn't necessarily the case with you know Yu-Gi-Oh and pokemon they've had longevity but they also have player turnover yes magic tends to have a little bit more player retention because you can earn money doing excuse me and then they get on to, you know, here's the difference between arena and paper and what things look like. And they say, look, the same thing we've been saying. Arena's a lot cheaper. It's just cheaper. It's one of the best ways for them to acquire new players and reacquire old players. And it doesn't cost a whole lot. No. Just so. the amount of time spent in development. No. The, the only thing that I like that they did here... Uh, that I found, again, kind of fun and interesting is the target age demographic for all the games. They filled them yeah. in. And they very yeah. clearly pointed the fact that the majority of players playing Pokemon they expect to be 6 to 12. And while that isn't necessarily correct because there still is the idea of uh, an adult Pokemon player, uh, worlds and large events are split between children's and adults it's not the same that you have yeah. with Yu-Gi-Oh and magic where it's just 
everybody together. There was the Junior Super Series for Magic that eventually, I know, that eventually got just booted. Um, and in all honesty, I think that that's fine because it was just this weird like side series to professional events, kind of unnecessary. Yep. But the fact they really, it almost feels like we're reading this. They want to ta- tailor the game or target the game to their 13 plus audience because they believe that really it is that plus that makes Magic more relevant than either Pokemon or Yu or Yu-Gi-Oh. The ceiling on those two games they believe is fairly fairly firm. And so the lifespan of the average player caps. And that is where and why there is churn. Whether that is a, a naive view or not, I, I can't really say because I don't know many people that still play Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh competitively. But at the same time, per your point, people are going back for nostalgia. But you can't yeah. buy, you know, that stuff anymore direct from Nintendo, yeah, from they're... Konami. You got to go secondary. So it's kind of a lost cause. The digital clients for both of the games, since they both got new clients, however, can make that a possibility. And at that point, subscription models or whatever they're doing for those products, yeah, absolutely. Then you can effectively just be raking people for nostalgia as the the Pokemon company and as Konami. Which, a little off topic, if anyone listening to this has not checked out the Yu-Gi-Oh! client yet, it is everything that you want from arena yeah. it is a functioning moto it does everything you want in Yu-Gi-Oh. there's an easy way for you to get the cards you want direct from konami where they get the money that isn't some shitty wild card system it's it's just it's amazing again as an aside but it's incredible it, it is a point that people kind of leaned on because this presentation was uh finished well before the ego client released and the fact that yeah. that client released with orders of magnitudes more cards than arena currently has is something that people are standing on and go like well what about arena why they did it why can't you and like this is everything in the game and you want to tell us that you can't get things to work look what they did their game at its core yeah. is simple but the mechanics can be intricate and incredibly complex they did it yeah, what's if, your excuse? if they found a way to do it, is yeah, what's your excuse? Is it literally because you have one team that handles everything? That's now that was making a GI Joe game for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah. All right, moving along. So our comparison of of Watsy to the only real competitor in the space, or mm, equal, I think, in the yeah. space that Alta Fox could define could find. And that is page 31, Watsi compared to Games Workshop. Or, yeah, singular. Yep. I think this is great. Um, Games Workshop was one of the pioneers of FBA in gaming. Uh, they've been around a similar length of time. Warhammer's been around since, like, late 80s, early 90s. They have world building. There's a lot of parallels the difference being that with Games Workshop, they don't have the rotational nature that Wizards of the, that Magic does. Mm-hmm. It's not like every year, you know, your old models are dead. It's every time that they come up with a new rule set, which isn't every year. It's like every four to five years. And they basically take a look and say, hey, look, Games Workshop, through smart investment, 
has been able to outperform everything else. And they highlight basically the differences and similarities between the two mm -hmm. is, you know, their acquisition targets, they have their own IP with an absurd ROI. But the key differences here, and these are important, are WotC has grown faster than Games Workshop, despite Games Workshop being twice the size. Mm -hmm. And there's no digital Warhammer. Like, you can't get your minis fix on Warhammer. There's no equivalent. There's, like, the total Warhammer games, the Warhammer 40k, like, Space Hulk, stuff like that. But it's not the same. No, not it's 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 not just cards. It's not the game itself. It's in the universe, but it's a different game. And one of the biggest dissimilarities here is how much more accessible Magic yeah. is than Warhammer because of this because there isn't an easy way to get your warhammer army besides literally dropping hundreds of dollars on an army hours painting the army assembling the army or hours paid to somebody which again is more expensive than just firing up arena dropping five bucks to go play in a draft get some cards and wild cards and go from yeah, there yeah uh, then they, you know, get into more minutia, nitty gritty, and the next comparison, and this is one that I actually take issue with. Okay. Is when they compare it to Formula One, and basically they say, "Hey, this is a, it's the Formula One for the record is the only publicly traded league of any sport. You can own a piece of." the Green Bay Packers, and this is on page 33, by the way. Yep. You can own a p piece of the Green Bay Packers, but they're not publicly traded. You don't get dividends or you, anything you get, I, else. I was actually looking into this for my father. I was actually going yeah. to buy him a share of the Green Bay Packers. It's still a bookmark I have. It is just a piece of paper. That's all it is. Congratulations. Yeah. You, because the Packers don't have an owner. They're owned by the fans, which means all the fans' money just goes into a big old bucket and a group of people aboard make the best decisions for the company. Yeah. Uh, and Formula One's publicly traded. They talk about its growth. And then they kind of compare it to, hey, this is its own league. It's its own sport. And they try to compare basically wizards of the coast as a sport which it's really not uh the one thing i will say that they touch on is they talk about the formula one series that netflix had a couple years ago and how it brought new people in mm -hmm. and hey maybe the uh magic the gathering show does the same thing so this this slide to me was like purely speculative was like hey here's something that looks similar but is dissimilar really and that that was why i took issue with it was to me i was like oh this is okay yeah i i understand yeah. where you take umbridge formula one is also a sporting event which with a very rich and long history and yeah. it is beloved the world around this isn't just a regional thing they spend millions of dollars building tracks all around the world People yeah. start training to drive like they are playing a, a regular sport, like you would think of. Yeah. You know, a, a baseball athlete, a football athlete, etc. They start training when they're a child, essentially. 
and uh, yeah, I kind of agree that this is kind of, this is wonky, but as a publicly traded sport, what else would you compare it to? But at the same time, why would you compare it to a sport? Why wouldn't you compare it to something else with a competitive outlet? Yeah, I mean, I, hell, even Blizzard Activision. Yeah, I mean, Hearthstone is a direct comparable that they mentioned multiple times through the presentation and like they have other brands well i think that the issue is that it was kind of failing the yeah the the trade the trading card competitive scene is kind of failing so maybe they just skipped right past mobas and they skipped past uh at like csgo and uh, the other fps games that still put up big numbers fighting games etc and they just went to people understand what sports are Let's just pick the only sport that's publicly traded. So yeah, I, I understand where you, where you can take umbrage with this, and it, it does make sense. Um, so it, it is also a weird slide to kind of have in here, on the whole. Um, yeah. But they do get to toss in the top right. We believe Watsi is significantly undervalued within Hasbro due to poor disclosure and investor messaging. That is just like this little bubble that lives on every slide in this section. So <laughs> every it's like, single page. Yes. Yeah. As a reminder, they dumb. Yeah. All right. Uh, I was gonna say, so moving on down through uh, some of the quality stuff, we get to the next page that we wanted to take a look at, which is Watsi Spectrum of Comps on page 37. So what do you got for this one? So this this one was interesting, and I like, again, like let's leave the Formula One out, yep. whatever, who cares. Uh, but what they're looking at in terms of similar profiles, so they think basically like ea take two mattel are on the low end of the spectrum uh mattel is obviously a clear analog to hasbro it is not a clear analog to wizards of the coast and that's the interesting one to me because they do mention a couple times hey mattel has done this worse they're paying less to their board and paying more to investors than you are and then you get into the aspirational stuff with like Roblox and stuff like that, where it's just insane. I I actually liked this simplistic presentation a lot. Uh, I think that the Microsoft and Adobe comparisons, I get it, they have similar financial profiles. I, but having a similar financial profile to me doesn't make it a good comparison, just because of how bizarre Wizards of the Coast business is. Yeah because collectible card games are not like a it's not everywhere you know my microsoft is a software company there's hundreds of thousands of software companies out there probably worldwide mm-hmm. to compare it to games workshop really to me does seem like the best direct comparison yeah and yeah i, I think that the the latter comparison to software developers speaks more to how alta fox believes wasi either does or can work internally and not just from a software development standpoint, but across the company where you can have these teams functioning in an agile environment, like that that kind of development paradigm where you're able to shift quickly, move fast, break stuff if you have to. Yeah. And both Microsoft and Adobe are companies that recently embraced the move to cloud taking their I don't want to say flagship offerings because I don't think Office is a micro, is the Microsoft flagship offering, but they rolled the entire Office ecosystem into uh, Microsoft 365, which is the online client, pushed everything there. And Adobe has recently abandoned the 
physical version of the Masters collection in favor of a cloud-based strategy. And so maybe that's kind of where they see Watsi going, is taking this paper product and going digital, effectively translating from, despite the fact that we're still a desktop medium to a cloud medium with Microsoft, with something like that. And it again, yeah. it, it is a little weird to put in here because they are wholly non-compatible companies. They just yeah doesn't quite make sense. You know, these are home na- well, um, household names. You know that like yeah. that's it. Everyone knows Microsoft. Everyone knows Adobe. Like these these are things that people know. Whereas yeah. Wizards of the Coast is like. And granted, courtesy of D and D, it's getting there, yeah. but it's not there. Stranger yet. Things can only do so much. At the end of the I, day, exactly. Um, yeah, there, there's there's some shots in here that fell flat because I guess people didn't do enough deep diving on the internet. But Magic in the early, late '90s and early 2000s did pop up in popular media, but it was always in the background. So if you go back yeah. and you watch Home Improvement the Tim Allen show in the boys room, there are magic cards all over the place and yeah. in boy meets world again in the boys room. It's people have actually been able to take, uh, the screen grabs from boy meets world and figure out what apocalypse cards or invasion cards are on the desk. Yeah. Like, they're there, but they're not a big part of it. And recently somebody found in a Seinfeld episode on the stack of crap, this, um, the shelf that he has a magic, uh, intro pack, the really tall one that looks like yeah. a board game, is in yep. Jerry's apartment next to his little computer by the by the the dining room table. Like it's there, but it's never the surface level. So maybe they didn't do that dive. Maybe they don't care because it's subsumed. But at the end of the day, like it's there. If you're telling me that cock magic wasn't one of the best uses of Magic: The Gathering in pop culture, I'm calling you a liar. Uh, that is. <laughs> One of many good episodes. You're right. I forgot. Oh, yeah, they're that. all good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I, I think the uh, to wrap these pages up on page 40, they again reiterate, why does this opportunity exist? Poor disclosure, low transparency, very destructive acquisitions, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then they touch on something which I thought was amazing, uh, which was the SEC took issue with poor disclosure over this. The SEC said, hey, Hasbro, give us more info on Arena. We, like, we need this. Absurd. And This wasn't in the original list of pages that we uh, decided to pull apart and talk about. This is kind of a last-minute addition on my part, but I think this is super important because you have uh, the SEC uh, a regulating agency? Yes, no? Yeah, yeah. You have a regulation, a regulating industry telling Hasbro, like, "Hey, you guys gotta actually step your shit up and figure out how to tell people everything you need to." Yeah, the regulation of the securities markets facilities, because that means that they're not reporting enough either to be a publicly traded company, or the SEC is realizing that there could just be a problem here and possible over or under valuation of the organization and thus comes through investigation and government litigation and there's a lot to this and I, this is 
something I wanted to say like thus far in the program, but here we are. And in the top right-hand corner, we believe Watsy is significantly undervalued with a Hasbro due to poor disclosure and investor messaging. And this is the slide. This is the slide. <laughs> Page 41 tells you everything you need to know. It's, so it's not just shareholders. You read through this, and this is what we talked about in the episode previously. As vendors, you go through this and you cut through and you're like, okay, there are people recognizing this. And yeah, sure, at the top, this is a, a business that is financially minded making these points. But when they point out a regulating uh, entity says, hey, fix your shit. This is this is important. This now carries more weight than just somebody crying that their dividends were low, and it is, I think, just core to the conversation on the, uh, as a whole. Memes aside, yeah, and this, you know, when we touched on last week, and we've been saying, you know, it, it seems like the left hand doesn't know what the right is doing. Yeah. This this is like reading this slide, and I'm glad that you did add it because I, like, it is probably out it's like top five most important slide probably because this this is the one that says hey like you said there's merit to this mm -hmm. there's you know it's not just us saying our dividends are low it's how can you be that bad at disclosure that the literal financial regulation like the regulatory authority in the finance world is like maybe something's going on yeah mind-boggling sorry it's fine continue and they they opened up a smidge you'll find out on that slide but not a whole lot yeah. but here we are this was all about uh, arena as well that's what it boils down to and yeah. some interesting facts came out about arena when hasbro basically had to backtrack and say well it wasn't actually full launch so we didn't have to blah 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 and this is something that alta fox keys in on in the really tiny footnote of text yeah and moving on from there we get to the first cut of slides and probably the last set for this episode that discusses entirely something you mentioned which is the board payout uh and this this one is all you oh okay so yeah so 51 to 53 they're not the most succinct set of slides but on the top level basically <laughs> what they're saying is that the board is making an extremely large amount of money for the little work that they do. They lowered the low-end incentives for people to hit additional thresholds and make money, but the higher-level in incentives were never actually adjusted. So Watsi's board is just making money hand over fist in comparison to other organizations whose boards are run yes differently but also tighter and that pay out more money to their shareholders and there's a bunch of watsy quotes in here that continue the string of what we already said which is just hasbro's doing nothing for us uh there was a really good one i just forgot which one it was um uh, the third that's one is exactly good. The, that's what i was just reading to verify from a senior game designer at watsy former because everybody was Hasbro put too much pressure on Watsi to achieve higher revenue targets and reduce costs. So many of our decisions were at the mercy of meeting larger corporate financial targets. The philosophy wasn't let's do what is best for Magic. It was always let's do what's best for Hasbro. Which speaks to something that, we talked, that we've talked about a lot, which is cutting back competitive, not supporting, like... 
nigh necessary development in arena reducing staffing was all part of this hasbro designed method to hit margins to shave costs and to do that hasbro meets their marks their board meets uh their their thresholds they make their bonuses and if i believe in this section as well this might also be the one that describes the fact uh this is e1 somewhere around here it basically goes on to say and i'm very sorry i did not pull this one out that hasbro's board has not been reinvesting in the company by buying stock they've either been holding yeah. or selling and that is super telling because it basically says that they just believe that it is what it is they're not going to be really doing much more with the organization. You just cash out here and there and make some coin because you're not expecting to grow this organization by leaps and bounds. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting, too, because when this gets into the actual E1 acquisition, it shows exactly like, you know, Hasbro doesn't know what they're doing. And that's just further evidenced by this, which... You know, as we said at the top, this was like, hey, we're we're using Wizards of the Coast money for this. Mm-hmm. It should be used to reinvest into Wizards of the Coast. And then it's, you know, literally the board just runs it like a cash cow. Yeah. It's the last thing on slide 53. In the two plus years since Hasbro announced the E1 acquisition, Hasbro shares have lost more than 15%, while the S&P 500 has returned more than 50%, resulting in a significant destruction of shareholder value. And yes, again, on the surface, this does seem like people crying about their dividends, but at the same time, the average investor doesn't have to be savvy to just buy into the S&P 500, a grouping of stocks that is meant to basically be the barometer the barometer for the market. So if people want to buy into Hasbro and buy into your organization, you got to prove that you can actually run your organization at a profit. Otherwise, you're doing nobody but yourself a disservice. Yeah. And I it's it's telling, you know, that combined with the fact that again, the board and I I also can't remember which slide it was, uh has been selling or sitting on their stock. I mean, that's, you know, what's What's one of the first signs that a company is going under? An executive unloads a bunch of stock. That's just what it is. It means they don't believe in the company they represent. Mm -hmm. If you believe in it, you're going to buy more stock. Yeah. Exactly. It's just mind-blowing. Yep. And I think this is, again, a really good kind of view into what's going on this endemic issue with the board which is just they're either really complacent with what's going on they have no understanding of how to run watsi and build that brand or they're just purely complacent and they just say f it we'll we'll ride watsi into the sunset and either we retire before the game does or we out it when it starts to fail yeah and that's not not even like that that's just bad business in general uh and i you know if if you're a vendor and you want to see your business grow after a big show where you do a hundred grand in sales and sales what do you do you reinvest that money into the vending business you you buy more carts you double down to grow your money faster that's just how 
business works, not just investment. And the fact that they're basically saying, hey, look, they're not doing this. They're investing this money and then watching it slip away is just wild to me. All while reducing the threshold for their incentives. Yeah. You're literally setting yourself up to fail and rewarding yourself for it. Why? I wish I could keep my job and do that. I mean, that's what happens when you buy the entire Saban brand, which is just built off of recycled footage. Oh, God, yeah. That was another disaster. Which, if uh, you care for that, I believe that's page 54 or 55. uh, And they get into the nitty-gritty of what the Power Rangers brand was, as well as the acquisition of backflip uh really really good information actually if you want to get into the nitty-gritty especially the power rangers acquisition uh to your point from slide 41 literally they did not disclose any of the financial metrics related to the acquisition or the power rangers to shareholders can you imagine as a vendor you sit down at a booth and you buy four sets of power. Uh, you don't buy it. One of your buyers does. You come over and you're like, how much do we pay for these? And the guy's like, I don't know. What? What? What, what do you mean you don't know? What? I don't know. You fire him. Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> like, You can't just spend that money and just I don't know. I don't, no receipts can tell you what no that's not okay ah, yeah that, mind blowing. yeah it is 55 it's like literally on the other side of the e1 acquisition because this is where they just start rallying on on hasbro yeah. for everything they've attempted and, and failed at which is a lot of things and that is basically where we will pick up next week as we continue to dive the I don't want to call it a saga, but we could definitely turn it into one. Uh, it is a, a really good read overall. Overall, I definitely recommend it because it's insightful in more ways than a lot of people want to give it credit for because they had to do their due diligence to yeah. basically let everybody know, including other shareholders, that, hey, we are being mistreated because they are mistreating their brand. And also, by the way, they've never told you anything proper about anything they've ever done in the history of who cares how long. Because nobody gives a shit how well Optimus Prime is selling. Like, nobody cares about Mr. Potato Head. Like, uh. Speaking of legacy brands, good lord. Oh yeah, that slide's really funny to look at, but uh, (laughs) that is going to be it for this week. We'll be back next week with more of this pdf breakdown again everything that we're pulling from will be in the notes either on the podcast description or in the description for the youtube video and i'm going to also try and include the definition of the brand blueprint that hasbro set forth we found a little two-page write-up it's kind of difficult to read because it's not the best rendered pdf on the planet and the images are really small but it gives you a sense of what hasbro is trying to do with this and what AltaFox is rallying on. And when it comes into play, we'll bring it in. And the other thing is there's a ton of business definitions throughout this. So if you don't mind reading through this and just shifting tabs, keep that in mind that it is really important to understand what a lot of these acronyms mean. So you're gonna wanna be reading up and 
uh, understand what's going on to just digest the entirety of it. Not what, really what we're going to talk about, but the whole hundred some odd pages worth. Yeah. But for MTG Kabbalcast this week, which you can find on all your podcast networks, at we are also at Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. I am at Halt. I am Reptar. You are. And Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.